I've been wondering all week, what was it that finally got to him? What made the desire in his heart so compelling? I've been wrestling with this. What was it that he heard? Or maybe what was it that he saw? What was it that captured his curiosity like nothing ever had? I wondered also, as I went through this week, did he hear a story about Levi, a fellow colleague of his, and how he had left the profession to follow this rabbi from Capernaum? And the story went on that he also got some of his buddies, his fellow colleagues, to join him at his house. And after meeting with this rabbi and having a bite to eat, they too left the profession. I wonder with, when he heard about that, I wonder if he asked in his mind, like, what is going on? What is going on? These guys are now unemployed. They've left everything as a result of following this rabbi. I also wondered whether or not he heard the story of the rabbi told about this prayer, this prayer that this uh, that this, this Pharisee made and that this tax collector made. And how in the story, the tax collector is the one who went away, justified before God, and not the Pharisee, the person that we would think would have. Uh, what was it that finally got to him? What was it so great in his heart and his thinking that said, man, I gotta see this rabbi myself. I've gotta connect with him. I wonder, was he tired of being despised and really hated by pretty much everyone he came in contact with, every, everyone, every day, every moment of every day, everywhere he went? I had to think that that had to get old for him. I wonder if he was call, tired of being called a traitor and every other name in the book except his own given name. Whatever it was, I don't believe it was letting up. I'm guessing he probably lost sleep at night. One of those nights, multiple nights, where you're just wrestling with this unsettled uh, part in your heart. As he's processing, processing that, I wonder if he got up in the day or in the night and walked around and he looked at all the money he had. Maybe he looked at the house or really the palace that he lived in and then sat down in some chair and found himself sitting in discontentment, sitting there with all that he had and still wanting something more. And then that day came. And the question he had to ask was, is it really true? Is this really happening? Is this rabbi I've heard all about actually coming to my city, to my neighborhood? Is this really going to happen? And as I thought about this, I thought that this day, this day more than any other day would change his life forever. His whole world, his goals, his values, his financial security, everything that he had set up and worked for would be all turned upside down. I had to think about this and process that, that when this day came, I imagined that he left his house kind of nervous. Also, at the same time, excited, nervous about what he might say or might be said to him, but excited to maybe get his story, a story of new hope found in his life. I imagine he left the house that day that way, 
And see, the crowd had already formed and the, the buzz and the word is out on the street that he's finally here. This well-known rabbi is finally in the city. And so he goes out, leaves his palace, leaves his home. I imagine him looking around. I imagine him waiting, again, with that nervousness, but yet that excitement of what would that encounter actually be like if he was to actually make eye contact and have a conversation with this rabbi. And while I wonder about things like this, I, one thing I don't wonder about is whether he knew that his story would become one of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture. I don't think he had any clue of that. And his story, as you know, was turned into a famous Sunday school song. After Jesus Loves Me, I think is the number one on the playlist in Sunday school growing up, the next one had to be his song on the top playlist. It had, it had to go. At least it was for me growing up. And this, my friends, is a story about a song, a story about an outcast. It's good news for the outcast. And so whether you're an old-timer here, not by age, but old-timer as in you've been coming to church for years, maybe decades, or you walked in here today, and today it's like, you know what, I'm giving this church thing a checkout. I'm just going to see what's going on and what it's like. Wherever you are in that spectrum, I'm guessing you've heard this story because it's one of the most famous stories ever. And as we come in this series, Knowing the Truth About Jesus and the Gospel of Luke, we come to his story. It's found in Luke 19, verses 1 to 10. It's when Jesus meets Zacchaeus. If you got a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This is the story of when Jesus meets Zacchaeus. Raise your hand if you've heard this story before. Oh, so, okay, so you do know what I'm talking about. But we're, here we are. Let's look at verse 1, Luke 19, 1 to 10. He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree in the order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus! Hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they, that's the crowd, saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything... I'll give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. God, I thank you, Jesus, that you put this in, that Luke recorded it, that we're reminded of your mission. And God, as we go through this study this morning, Lord, through these contextual lenses we're going to look at and through these personal 
questions, I think, that are applicable to our lives within the context of these verses. God, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts, that you would just calm us now. That, God, your spirit would fill this place. And, God, that I would just be simply a messenger. And that, uh, God, the work that you did in me this week would somehow work even more so in the lives of us as we take in these verses. In Jesus' name, I pray. So the story, we've all known the story. We've sang the song. Pretty familiar. So as you come as a pastor to present a message and a story in a text, it's like, I've heard that before. Where do you go with this? And so as I wrestled with that, I came down to kind of two areas I wanted to focus on in our time together this morning. First of all, when we're, we're going to interact with this story by looking through what I call three contextual lenses. Three contextual lenses. In other words, the context of what's going on that I don't want us to miss, but that we could easily not look there. And so I'm calling it the lens of Jericho, the lens of taxes or taxation, and of course the lens of Zacchaeus, to look through that lens and see what's there. And then I hope what we can do as we interact with this story is apply three personal questions Questions that I wrestled with as I wrote them, and I hope that you'll wrestle with them too as you process and answer these questions from the good news of this story. So let's look at these lenses. Let's first put the lens, the contextual lens of Jericho, and look at that. Look back at verse 1. This is an easy verse just to scream right on by. It says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There's a lot there. I don't know if you knew this or not, but I learned this week that archaeologists consider Jericho to be the oldest continuously inhabited city on the face of the earth, dating back to 8,000 B.C. It's been around a long time. There's always been someone living there for the past 10,000 years. Not only that, for this city, as you look to the lens, you would see, like, wow, that's way down there. It's because it's 820 feet below sea level. So not only is it the oldest city with the most inhabited continuously for people to live in, it's also the lowest city on the planet, being, as I said, 820 feet below sea level. It's about 15 miles from Jerusalem, and Jesus is on his way there to Jerusalem, but Jericho, Jericho is the gateway. It's the gateway to the rest beyond the Jordan River and on up north of Israel. And everybody went through here. You know, if you look at a map of Israel, you'll see the Mediterranean out there. And, and, and you think of a port city being on the coast. But I want to submit back in this context, in this setting, in, in Zacchaeus and Jesus' day, that the port city was really more like Jericho. Because Jericho was the champion of commerce of that day. More business was done there than any other place. More traffic came through. More trade than other, any other city in the region of Palestine. It was it. And as a result, Jericho was the most heavily taxed city of all the cities in the region. Which is the perfect place to live and do business if you're a tax collector. Right? Right? So that's the lens of Jericho. Let's look at the lens of taxes and taxation. Because it says here in verse 2 that there is a man there called by the name of Zacchaeus. 
you might have them wondering in your spell check mind going, isn't there supposed to be an A in that word Zacchaeus? You can spell it that way too, but the NASB, for whatever reason, decided to leave out the A. They couldn't afford the vowel, so they just said, you know, we're going with spelling Zacchaeus this way. He's the chief tax collector, and it says that he's rich. So what's going on here as a tax collector, particularly a chief tax collector? Well, under the authority of the Roman Empire, tax collecting was big business. Remember, Israel is held captive, if you will. They're under the rule of the Roman uh, of Rome at this point. And given their Roman authority, the tax collectors could tax people ruthlessly because that's what the Roman government did, and they're just following their orders. And the collectors knew it wasn't fair. But as the phrase goes, it was easy money. It was easy money. Taxes were quite simple. We think of taxes today and we're like, man, that's complicated. I need a CPA to figure this out. Well, they weren't quite as complicated as you might imagine back then. They were pretty straightforward. Here's some examples. Any crop that you grew, which farming, of course, was agriculture was significant in that time, 10% of your profits from your, all your grown goods off to Rome. The Roman government collected it. Any wine or oil, so a commodity, whatever it was, it was olive oil, whatever that was, one-fifth of that profit goes to the Roman government. Furthermore, there is a 1% tax on your income. That doesn't sound too bad, but when you consider all the other taxes you're paying, and what else I want to share with you about taxes, you go, you know, that's even more than I realized on that 1% of the income on top of the taxes for your crops and goods. There's also a tax on every person in your family. So the bigger your family got, the more taxes you would have to pay. And there was also fixed taxes, and that was set up that way. So we think about tax deductions. There's no deductions here that you can write off when it came to what Rome was owed. After that, was it all called the flexible tax that you might have to pay? And that was left to the discretion of the local tax collectors. So whatever they wanted to do taxing-wise, they could tax it. So you pull up in your chariot with all your goods not only with Rome taxes, and that was collected, they could tax you on anything that they wanted in there. That watermelon you got in there, taxed on that. You have two axles here on your chariot, taxed on that. You have two horses pulling this, taxed on that. Whatever it was, they could be taxed. And so you can imagine of how unpopular being a tax collector would have been if not only are you paying it to Rome, you're also having to pay this guy whatever he comes up with. So that's the lens of Jericho and the taxes that are going on. Let's go to Zacchaeus and look at this contextual lens for him and look at him a little bit. When you have a city like Jericho full of commerce and taxation, like nowhere else in the region, okay? And you are the chief of all the tax collectors. In other words, you have tax collectors that are underneath you, right? That you have working for you. You have to be one of the wealthiest people, not only in the city of Jericho, but in the entire region, when you're Zacchaeus. It says here that he was rich, right? And everyone in that city knows how Zacchaeus got rich. He's working for the Roman government. So you think, wow, the income's pretty good. It says he was rich. He had an amazing palace or a house. Had to be all good, right? Not necessarily. You see, because he decided up for that, to do that, Zacchaeus was working for the enemy. 
He was back in the Roman government. And when he says pay up, you pay up or risk the consequences of the Roman guard being there at your door the next day. And so not all is well for the people in Jericho, right? And we think, man, Zacchaeus has got it made. Well, not everything is made for him. Because he's working for the Roman government, here's what he's lost. Here's what he's let go of, all for the money. Being a chief tax collector, he was disowned by his family. So his family that he'd grown up with and knew when he signed that contract to work for the Roman government, they disowned him. He's off on his own. So he's lost his family. Furthermore, because he was a Jew and practicing Jews went to the synagogue, that meant he was banned from the synagogue. He was banned from practicing Judaism. He was banned from having and practicing a religion. He couldn't go to church like he had done. So he's given that up. Zacchaeus not only lost that, he also lost his calendar. And some of you think, well, yeah, I don't want to lose my calendar. Well, what does this mean for him? Losing his calendar meant that he was not allowed to participate in the annual Jewish uh, celebrations, whether that was a feast or some holiday or some festival cut off, no longer allowed to attend. So when Jesus encounters Zacchaeus, when he comes into Jericho and encounters Zacchaeus, he encounters a man who's lost his religion, he's lost his family, he, he, he's lost his friendships, he, he's lost the ability to participate in Jewish things on his calendar, Jewish celebrations on his calendar, all because he wanted the money. You know the next part of the story. It's found in verses 3 and 4. And if we were to look at that and read that, you go, yes, this is where that song comes from, where it says, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a what? Uh, So you sang that song. I won't sing it. We could stop and sing it, I suppose, but we'll let Mark lead us in that maybe some other day. In Jewish culture, here's what's interesting that isn't picked up in the Sunday school class of singing that song. Grown Jewish men don't run. You don't do that. That was something you just didn't do. Whether you want to call it taboo or whatever, especially wearing a cloak, the clothing that he would have wore that day. So for him to be a guy who was running as a grown man, it was totally embarrassing. In fact, it was probably laughable to see a grown, you just don't, look at that guy running, where is he going? No one sees that. I missed that in the song. And it wouldn't surprise me if his behavior of running to see Jesus made him even more of an outcast in that city. But there's good news for the outcasts. Jesus is coming. He's coming into Jericho for one reason and one reason only. It's to see Zacchaeus. That's it. That's why he's coming to Jericho at this point, is to see Zacchaeus. And being short in a large crowd in front of him, Zacchaeus runs and climbs up in a sycamore tree to see Jesus. The sycamore trees we think of, we don't think of them as having figs or fruit on them, but the sycamore tree there in Palestine had that, unlike the ones we have here in North America. So here's this tree. They're everywhere. They're lined the streets. They're easy to be able to climb up in. And so here he is in this tree. And so you heard me say, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, as I began my message. 
Well, I, I wonder what he had heard about Jesus that compelled him to run, even though that's not what you do. What compelled him that he had heard about Jesus to want to climb up in a sycamore tree? What was it about him that he had heard? What captured his attention so much that he was willing to do that? I wonder, because of his money, but in light of being cut off from everybody, I wonder if in his money he tried to pay somebody to say, hey, could you tell me one of those stories about, about this rabbi from Capernaum? Like, like, could you tell me the story about those lepers that got healed? Tell, tell me that story. The, those 10 guys. Or maybe it's the conversion of a Roman centurion. Or, or these stories about these blind men being able to see or these lame men being able to walk again. I'm sure he died to hear the story about Bartimaeus who had been healed, the blind man had been healed just outside Jericho. That had to be the top story because it just had happened right there outside his house. Whatever it was, in verses 5 to 6, we read this. Look back in your Bible. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, stop. What do you think he said to him? Well, we know it, but what do you think the crowd was thinking he was going to say to him? What do you think Zacchaeus was thinking Jesus was going to say to him? Zacchaeus knows who he is and what he's been doing. So to speak, when your father comes home, you're not expecting things to go well or that the word out of his mouth would be his name, Zacchaeus. No one's calling him that. All the other names and the traitor and so on and so forth. But to hear him say, Zacchaeus. And so then what we see here is he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. And it says that he hurried and came down and received him gladly. Some of your Bible translations might have joyfully. They received him with joy. So I must stay at your house. Imagine hearing that. Nobody's wanted to come to his house. He doesn't have any friends, any family, any church friends. Nobody. Just doing business with other tax collectors that are underneath him. And look how the crowd responds in verse 7. When they saw it, they saw what was happening and where he was going and what they had heard Jesus say. They all began to jump up and down. Finally, this guy's going to get saved. Is that what it says? No, it says that they began to grumble. Grumble, grumble, grumble. He's going to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. What kind of rabbi is this guy? The Pharisees, the, the, what we'd heard at the church growing up, it's like, you never go to that guy's house and this rabbi's doing that? What kind of rabbi is this that goes to be the guest of a sinner? And indeed, Jesus does go there, and it's good news for this particular outcast because he's coming to his house. When you look at verses 7 and 8, you see a response that Zacchaeus gives, or in that window there, we, we, we don't see as much there's what I'm, is what I'm trying to point out, because when you get to verse 8, you see Zacchaeus' response. And, and I just want to say, I don't know if this is right, but it, it seems to me as I've read through this and see what others have said about this, I don't believe that Zacchaeus' response of what he says back to Jesus 
in verse 8 happens right there while he's hanging out in the tree. I think he's come down, right? We saw that. I want to submit to you that perhaps Luke leaves out the part about the dinner that they had. I mean, think about it. He's got his 12 disciples with him. They're not eating real well, but they're going to this guy's house, the richest man in the area. Can you imagine the spread that would have been put out for them? And somewhere during that meal, maybe at the end of the meal, who knows? That's when I sense that this conversation unfolds and what Luke records for us to see that Zacchaeus is coming back with a response. And so we've looked at these three lenses of Jericho, the taxes, and Zacchaeus. And it comes now for me to bring us three questions, three personal questions that I think can help you and me personalize Zacchaeus' story, hopefully in a fresh way from a story that we all know so well. Here's the first question that I want to throw out to you. How do you know you've believed and received the good news? How do you know that you've believed in Christ and received him as your Savior? How do you know that that's really happened versus just words of a prayer, which I think is a great starting point, but it goes so much further than that and how you go out to live the Christian life. Well, let me give you two thoughts. One answer, I think, or thought is this. There is repentance from your old life. There is repentance in your, from your old life. If you look at verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said, the Lord, I, th- I think this is out somewhere around the meal or whatnot. Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. Wait, what? And if I have defrauded anyone, uh, I think you have, <laughs> I will give back four times as much. Zacchaeus' old life was ripping people off. Repentance brought a 180-degree turn in his life. It changed him completely, and he proved that through giving. When you look through the Old Testament, Exodus 22, verses 1 through 4, uh, and the law, Leviticus 5.16, Numbers 5.7, it gives specific instructions about how this happens, and that you give when you've ripped somebody off what you need to do. Well, you need to not only pay them back what you took from them, you also need to add 20% to it. It's 20% restitution to make it right. Zacchaeus not only pays the full amount, but what does it say there? If I've defrauded anyone, I will pay them back 20%? No, four times as much. Talk about repentance from your old life. And on top of this, Zacchaeus promises to give half of his possessions to the poor. He has a lot of possessions. The Bible says that he was rich. To give away half of that. Imagine doing your riches that you have, whatever you have, giving away half of it right now to the poor. That's what Zacchaeus does. This is an element here, a picture of his repentance from his old life. Luke, or John the Baptist in Luke 3.8 says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So how do we know that Zacchaeus believed to receive the good news? We see it in his own, his own life because he repented of his old life. So I challenge you to stop and think for yourself today. Ask yourself this question, how do I know that I believed and received the good news? Can I look back on my life and go, I've repented from my old life. Can you look back? Can you ask others to say, do you see a difference in my life since I made this decision to follow Christ? This idea of repentance, since the day you were born, you have been breathing. 
this idea came to my mind. You think about it. Since the day you were born, you've been breathing. And until you stop breathing, well, we know what happens then. And breathing continues on. Why do I bring up breathing? Because it's the most natural thing that your body is supposed to do. It goes on and on and on until the day you die. Guess what? In the Christian life, repentance is supposed to be like breathing. It continually goes on day after day. Not, I once repented, which there might be a starting point, but it's a continual life of repentance. And that's what we see here with Zacchaeus. That's something that's supposed to be in our own lives. How do we know that you believe and receive the good news? Here's a second way. There are new goals and values in your life. There are new goals and values in your life. If you look at verse 9, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Jesus affirms Zacchaeus' salvation. He does so by also affirming his ancestral heritage to Abraham. Guess who's in the line of Abraham? Jesus. So here is this heritage that he has, and he brings us, and he says, hey, you have re- I want to remind you of the value that you have in a relationship with God. Don't forget that, Zacchaeus. You're just as much of the inheritance and the journey with that as anybody else is. And as Jesus affirms Zacchaeus' salvation, he does so by knowing Zacchaeus' house. So not only does salvation come to Zacchaeus personally, but it references it here that it comes to his house. And the Greek word is oikos. We might have heard that around here. And this idea is that not only is it him, but his household has taken on new goals. His household has taken on new values as he starts living for Jesus. This is how we know that you believed and received the good news. These goals and his values show up in two main areas, inside his house and outside his house. They show up for us inside our house and outside our house, how we live outside of our home. This is true for Zacchaeus. It's supposed to be true for us. So for you today, think for a moment. Ask yourself this question. How do I know that I received, believed and received the good news? Can you look at the goals and the values that you have in your life and go, those are different. Those have changed since I came to know Jesus. Are they heavenly minded? Are they eternally set in your mind? That they speak to your heart that way? I think of it like this, uh, and I got a clean mind this afternoon. <laughs> I have a filter with my air conditioning unit and the central air and central heat, and I felt the, the uh, my wife just can't live without air conditioning, and I can't live without money to pay the bill she wants for that air conditioning. But anyway, she, uh, so I noticed that the air doesn't, doesn't seem to be flowing well, and I told her I got to check the filter. The filter filters out everything we don't want coming in, Right? In the same way, what I'm looking at this and saying here is these goals and these values, they filter out everything else that shouldn't be there. They filter in what should be what Scripture says is supposed to be your goals and your values. And everything that flows through Scripture as you look at that, as you do your personal time with God, it's that filter that keeps going. Let me, let me put everything I'm thinking. What, what are my values today? What are my ambitions? What are my goals? What are my dreams? I'm filtering through that, through what God says. These are just a couple ways how you can know you believe and receive the good news as I looked and wrestling with this first question. Here's a second question. Why should you share the good news? This seems to be a passage about evangelism given what verse 10 says. 
In fact, let's go there. Sharing the good news was the mission of Jesus. Look at verse 10. For the Son of Man, it's a kind of a wrap-up right here, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is a major theme in Luke's gospel over and over and over again. And it reflects the image of a shepherd seeking his lost sheep. If you go to Matthew 9.13 and Mark 2.17 and Luke 5.32, I think I put these in your, in your notes, you read this, Jesus, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. His mission is said over and over and over again by the gospel writers. What was Jesus' mission? His mission is a model for us of how do we, what should, why should we share the good news? He modeled it for us. It was his mission, and the writers put that out to us. Why should also we share the good news? Sharing the good news, number two, is the great commission given to you. It's the great commission given to you. So let me ask for your help here. Um, how many of you as believers would say you know what the great commission is? Just raise your hand. You can do that. You know what that is. In other words, you have an idea when this comes up, you're going, oh, it's not like I've never heard this before. The Great Commission. In other words, you know about Matthew 28, 19 that says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You've known about that verse, right? And you know about Acts 1, 8. And when Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of of the earth, including South Orange County? Yeah, that end of the earth. In other words, you know and believe this is good news for the outcast, right? Because that's what we're mission is to be about. Jesus modeled it for us, and then he commissioned us to do it. There's no plan B. You and I are plan A to do this. So the, that's the second question, is why should you share the good news? Jesus modeled it. It was his mission, and he's given you and me the great commission. Last question is this. So how can you share the good news? How could you share the good news? I want to offer two ways, and these ways speak to me from this context and these verses here. Because we could go a whole week or a month, or do a six-month series on evangelism. I'm just saying from what I see within Zacchaeus and Jesus' interaction with him. Here's the first one that you might not think of as a way to go and share the good news, but it's modeled for us by Zacchaeus. Here it is. Seek restitution with those you've wronged. Ah, ouch. Seek restitution with those you've wronged. When I look at verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said, Behold, if half my possessions I give to the poor, if I defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Seek restitution with those you've wronged. So imagine for a moment, imagine for the moment after Zacchaeus has come to know Christ and he's made this statement and now he's got to put it into practice. And I'm sure he's being the chief tax collector, has great records over all the other tax collectors and all that they took. And so I can imagine him sitting in his palace going through the logs of all the taxes and all the people that they ripped off. 
So as he goes to make this right, imagine him going out one night, knocks on a door of someone's house. They're asleep. They get up. The husband goes to the door, and he opens the door, and he's like, ah, shuts it. It's Zacchaeus. What's he doing? Honey, who is it? Oh, Zach, Zacchaeus. What's he doing here? He's taxed us all enough. What more does he want? I don't know. But I think I better answer the door because the Roman guards might be out there. I mean, he could look in the peephole and see over him, right? Because he's a wee little man, right? So as he opens the door, imagine Zacchaeus going, oh, I'm sorry to bother you. And you know, I've been an outcast. But something's changed in my life. I, I met Jesus. And I want to make things right. I have an envelope for you. Have a good night. And he goes on his way with his sash full of more envelopes. And as the family opens it up and they look inside that envelope and they see all this money given back to them four times as much. Maybe part of the possessions that he had is that he gave to them. See, Seeking restitution with those you've wronged. That's how you can share the good news. In your life, maybe there's a family or a friend or a coworker or a neighbor or an acquaintance, somebody in the past that you know that you've wronged and you thought, oh, I'm a Christian now. I'm forgiven for that. I don't need to worry about that. Oh, maybe there's something that you could go and make right. Maybe if you flip it over and go, maybe I need to forgive somebody who wronged me and not hold on to that anymore been there, done that many times, been there, done that on seeking restitution with those of wrong. Maybe as a believer, another believer feels that you've wronged them, whatever it is. As a pastor being in ministry now for 26 years, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but I am not perfect. My dog thought I was for a long time though, and I love that part. I've had to go to people's houses and knock on their door. And say, I feel I've wronged you. It's not fun. But I felt out of, I'm going to be repentant. If I'm going to live out Jesus, if I'm going to have these values and goals in my life, then maybe I take a lesson from Zacchaeus and I go seek restitution with those I've wronged. It's something that I see this doing because it, Romans 12, 18 says, as much as it depends upon you, Bill, live at peace with everyone. Man, that's good news for the outcast. How can you share the good news? Let me give you one other practical strategy. Seek out sinners. Love and befriend them. Seek out sinners. Love and befriend them. As I sat and put this together, uh, I was just processing this one. And as I did, I thought for a moment, I'm like, you know, who are the sinners, the outcasts? in my life that I should be reaching out to, loving and befriending. My phone is sitting there, and I thought, let me just look through my contacts. I didn't know it, but I have 172 contacts in my phone and counting. As I scrolled through, slowly, looking at the contacts, minus a couple businesses and whatnot, I got to the end, I thought, you know what? I think if I went to almost all of these 172 contacts and I said, do you profess to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I'm guessing almost all of them, not all 172, would say, I do. That convicted me. 
uh, I'm just wrestling with that. Not that I need to have a bunch of, quote, sinners in my phone contact list. You're like, what kind of phone contact list do you have, right? But to not have any? To not have someone's number? Who right now, if they die, is an outcast from heaven? Yeah, so when you go to put together messages, you wrestle with things like this. You process things like this. And if I was to ask you the question, how many of you believe I'm using my list to seek out sinners and love and befriend them, you'd go, uh, I don't think you're doing that. At least with your contact list. And I thought, well, then that's not good news for the outcast, is it? Oh, yeah. We're still, look at what Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We, Bill, are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We're the ones that are to go make the contact, to reach out to the sinner, to love them. Um, so the truth is, I have work to do. You don't have to raise your hand, but I have to admit, I don't want to be alone. <laughs> if I was to sit with you knee to knee over a cup of coffee and I said, do you struggle with this too? I so hope you would say, yes, I do. Because then we could pray for one another. And we can go, man, how do we work through this? We hear about the five for five that we're supposed to reach now. Man, how can we get this and do this and make a better effort of it? I see that Zacchaeus did this, and he was a sinner. The crowd said so. And this is who Jesus seeks out for us to befriend and to love. So as I was processing through this week and, and going through and preparing this message, I got an email from John Foreman of Switchfoot, the lead singer. Not that he emailed me personally, although I would love that. But he emailed me with this email saying that, hey, I've been asked to write a song for the upcoming movie, uh, Unbroken, Path to Redemption. It's the sequel about Louis Zamperini's conversion to Christ. Many of us saw the movie, maybe read the book. And so I put the words up on the screen for you as I read through this and just played the song over and over and over and over and over and over again. And John writes it this way, I was looking for a way back home when I found healing for my broken heart. I found mercy in your open arms. I found freedom when you set me free. I found myself when you found me. And while I thought about this, I thought Zacchaeus might like the Sunday school song. But as I had thought about these words, and if you hear the song and watch the video that came out this week of this song, the music video, I couldn't help but think about Zacchaeus. Thinking, I think he could sing this song. And my conviction is there's a lot of other people out there, maybe not in our contact list, but need to be, that could sing this song too. And that's good news for the outcast. And so we have this week waiting for us. Let's live it well. Let's do our best to seek the outcast and bring them home to Jesus.